Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Well, then let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this class and these friends. And God, we ask for your help today to think rightly about you and to think rightly about ourselves. Teach us from your word today, both in this time together and in the time that we worship together as a body. We love you and we just want you to get great glory from us. And so we do this in pursuit of that aim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to another Equip class. Um, the faithful have shown up today, so grateful for you guys. I mean, I'm happy to do this alone, although that's what I've been doing all week, so it's fun, more fun to share with everyone. Um, I'd asked for a, um, a couple articles to be sent out this week. Did anybody get any of those? I got an email, but I didn't open it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. It's all right. No. You got through one of them. Hey, that's good, man. Those are those are to be supplemental to kind of help you have a maybe a, a little bit of an orientation walking in here, so you don't feel so disoriented, I guess. Um, well, uh, I'm not gonna go over the overview that I've gone over the last three weeks, so I'm gonna trust that all of us know we're talking about theological anthropology, which is a study of um, personhood. And, um, and so I've done the overview, and today we're going to look at biblical foundations, among other things. Um, so, uh, as you can tell, maybe the last few weeks, I've shifted um, away from putting time and energy into screen content and more into notes for you to be able to have in front of you. You know, if this were my full-time job, you would get both. Um, but it's not. And so um, I thought this would be more helpful to you to be able to take with you and be able to study further um, or store away or whatever you would like to do with it. Um, so um, just any questions or reflections over the last couple, two, three weeks that we've been thinking and talking about this? Okay. Um, well, let's start with the biblical contours, all right? So if you're looking at your notes, um, there's a few aspects that I want to talk about. Um, first, there's the image of God. And I want to talk about the biblical foundations of this concept of the image of God. And you can really think about the image of God from a biblical standpoint um, in really three categories. That's resemblance, representation, and... Um, responsibility, which I think I might have, oh, it's on the back here, yeah, and responsibility. Um, and so those three aspects um, are what I think, at least at this point, provisionally, make up the biblical category of being made in the image of God, all right? So I want to walk through those, and we'll just see how far we can get today. Um, so, resemblance. Um, a guy named Anthony 
uh, Hokima, I think is how you say it. I, actually, I'm not really sure. Um, he said uh, that when one looks at a human being, one ought to see in him or her a certain reflection of God. Another way of putting this is to say that in man, God is to become visible on earth. Um, uh, Herman Bavink, who lived um, in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, he said, Such as man is in miniature, such is God in the large. The infinitely large outline for man is such as God is. So the point being made by these two um, is that uh, there are certain characteristics about us as people that reflect God to the world. So that when we exist and live in the world um, and people see us, they're seeing something that is actually resonant and like God. Um, So there's been a lot of debate on this, uh, if you were to kind of comb through all the literature, but we'll just say this morning that that tends to be characteristics about us, you know, our, our, um, our innate ability, and I, and I want to come back to that word ability, but for now, just because I don't have a better one, ability to love, um, to, um, to act and think morally in the world, um, to, um, to endure, to be patient, to be kind. I mean, we could list several more of those kinds of features that mark all of us as people, right? Um, But these are, um, because God is not physical, you know, He's not a person um, in that sense, then we can't really associate the likeness of God um, with the outward appearance, right? Um, and so what we have to do is then think about ourselves in terms of the features that make us us, the immaterial parts, okay? And so the love, the compassion, the kindness, things like endurance or rationality or intellect, um, all of these things uh, are in some ways communicating like uh, a mirror to the world what God is like. Make sense what I'm saying? Um, and so resemblance is an important aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, a second aspect is what we'll call representation. Um, representation first is male and female. So um, when you read what theologians say about being made in the image of God, uh, one of the main things that you see uh, across the conversation, and not everyone agrees on this, but part of what it means to be made in the image of God is the maleness and femaleness. And there's two things about that. Number one, um, that there are male and females, okay? So just kind of objectively, there is a sex and there, that is male, and there's a sex that is female. Um, and they are different from one another. In the Hebrew, in Genesis 1, where you see um, in chapter, sorry, in Hebrew, in the Genesis chapter 2 account of the creation of man, um, you have man, and you have woman, and man is, uh, is Adam, and woman is uh, Adamah, 
and so they are almost exactly the same word um, because they are of the same kind. Um, but the Hebrew is feminized with uh, Adama there at the end, um, which is to say that they are both humans, but there is, so there's unity, but there is distinction between them. Does that make sense? Um, Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image, so that's uh, Adam, and in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So they're both equally made in the image of God. And then the second aspect about male and female is that um, a lot of theologians say that to represent the fullness of the image of God, you must see man and woman together. That, you know, in the original good creation, there was not meant to be, um, you know, man or woman alone. In fact, it was not good that man was alone. That was the first time in the entire first chapter into the second chapter that, um, that God said something was not good. So it's, it's filled with... This was good. This was good. He created the light. This was good. He created the seas. This was good. The sea creatures. This was good. And then he saw man in his solitude and he said, this was not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And so he created male and female in his image. to. And so the part of that that's representing him in the world is this communal part that we were made to be in community because he has been in eternal community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together for all of eternity. And so we are imaging him, representing him in the world when we come together into this holy community that he's created between man and woman to better or more fully tell the story of what he is like. Does that make sense? Come on in. All right. Um, the second aspect of this representation that maybe is less lesser known is um, well, you know, if you if you were to read a guy named Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellman, they have a book called uh, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, um, which is a fantastic book um, to help you understand how the Bible fits together. And they say that the term, the image of God, in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the 15th century BC would have communicated two main ideas. So when we think about what does it mean to be made in the image of God biblically, some of what we have to do is realize that the Bible, even the Old Testament, is pulling on other kind of cultural categories that were already in play at the time. Does that make sense? So the language, the image of God, did not show up on the scene when the Bible was written. It was already being used by other cultures in the ancient Near Eastern world around the same time as Israel. All right. So the question then is, in what way was the category being used and what is the Bible uniquely doing with that category? So the term the image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the 15th century BC would have communicated two main ideas. Number one, rulership. And number two, sonship. The king is the image of God because he has a relationship to the deity as the son of God and a relationship to the world as a ruler for God. All right, so that may seem kind of strange or foreign to us because we just don't talk about it in that way and it's not immediately obvious from the text. 
but that's what's being assumed in the category. And then when you realize it's being assumed in the cultural category, then you start to see it everywhere. So um, Luke understood this when he was writing his gospel as a reader of Genesis. He understood these categories were at play. And so when he puts together the genealogy of Jesus to show the lineage of Jesus and therefore the rulership and the divinity of Jesus, when he gets all the way back to the very beginning, so he starts with Jesus and works his way back. When he gets to the very, very beginning of the genealogy, he says in Luke 3.38, the son of Adam, and then who was Adam? He was the son of God. All right, so there's that sonship language that Adam is understood by the New Testament authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit that Adam was a son of God. So being made in the image of God is connected to the sonship language that we're talking about from the culture. And then the second piece is the kingship, okay? Um, so in Genesis 128, you have the word rada, which ha- means to have dominion. That is a king kind of language. Like who, who in the world has dominion over things? It's usually a king or a sovereign authority, right? And so in, um, in 128, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's a kingly kind of thing to do. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But it's not just in Genesis 128. It's also in Psalm 110 verses 1 through 2 where it says that the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, so Lord being Yahweh and then also the king of Israel. Okay, so again, ruler, king here. Um, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, because kings hold scepters, right? And then the word rule there is the word radah, same one used in Genesis 128. Radah, rule in the midst of your enemies to this king of Israel. He's telling them to rule in the midst of your enemies, to radah. And then in Psalm 72.1, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. There's a sonship language again. And then you get to verse 8. May he, that son, the royal son, have dominion, radah, from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And so built into this category in Genesis 1.28 is both sonship and kingship. What we have in Adam to be made in the image of God means that you are meant to function as both a king and a son. Or probably better yet, the other way around. A son of the king who is now functioning as a king over the earth. And just by way of comparison too, um, the same word is not being used here, but the psalmist reflected on, um, on Genesis chapter 1 in a similar way as what we're talking about now. And so this isn't just me, it's not just theologians that we've read, but the Bible itself is thinking about itself this way, and that's always important. So if you were to look at Psalm verse, verse, uh, sorry, Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, you would see the psalmist say, You have made man a little less than the gods. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And then if you were to look in Genesis 1, 26, 28, you would see that that is really a commentary on 126a, where it says, Let us make mankind in our image and according to our likeness. 
So the psalmist is saying, you have made him a little less than the gods in making him according to your image and according to your likeness. You have crowned him with glory and honor by making him in your likeness. Or if you were to look at Genesis 1.26b, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. And then you look at Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8, you see him commenting on that. He says, you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And just as an asterisk, for the psalm writer, crown, using the word crown, using the word glory, using the word honor, these are all royal terms that link to the image of God. And so being made in the image of God should automatically encourage all of us that every single one of us in here is envisioned by God to be His sons and daughters. Son is just a, kind of a, a, the language that they used back then, and I can explain that if you want to go further with it. But it's not being, you know, patriarchal in the worst senses of the word. Um, but that all of us are sons and daughters before God. And second, we are all kings and queens before God, meant to rule over this earth and be its stewards, be its kings, to administer justice and righteousness and love and mercy in the earth. Okay? That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then the third aspect of being made in the image of God is this responsibility piece that, we, that we've already looked at multiple times here in Genesis 1. Um, but I, you know, for tongue-in-cheek, but also to draw out the significance, it's not just responsibility, but to have responsibility implies that you have response-ability, that you can respond in the appropriate ways to the responsibility given to you. Uh, all right, and so in Genesis 1, it's what we call the cultural mandate. It's to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to um, fill it, to have dominion over these things, right? It, the vision of this is to take the confines of the garden that were pristine, that were beautiful, that were continually being tilled and worked and kept by the man and the woman in the garden, and to expand that across the face of the planet which implies that there was some level of unfinished work of God outside of the bounds of the garden, that there was still some level of chaos that he had ordered sufficiently, but not completely, and that he intended for us as his sons and daughters, kings and queens, to take the good order inside the garden and expand it so that the entire earth, as we filled it with more images like us, created more beauty through us, and the entire earth would then be filled with His glory. But to do that, you have to have certain capacities. You have to be able to think rationally. You have to, have to, you have to be able to have, um, you know, opposable thumbs, right? Uh, to be able to grab things and hold them and manipulate them. You have to be able to um, do complex, uh, you know, math and logic. Uh, you have to be able to live with one another in um, civil community. You have to be able to, um, you know, honestly, you, you could take this all the way down to the ability to uh, see color, to taste, um, you know, differences in food, because all of these things uh, enliven the imagination to be able to think of what's possible. So going back to last week, 
that's where someone like Cicero um, was so helpful, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, this ability to uh, both remember the past and plan for the future. These are complex, imaginative things that, can, that humans are capable of. Um, even if not necessarily literally imagining in your mind, because not everybody can do that, but you can do some function of that on paper, right? You can um, write out constructions of different ways in which scenarios could play out in uh, the world um, in ways that they have played out in the world. And so these are part of your responsibility to the responsibility given. Um, so the capacities to fulfill the cultural mandate are important. Now, that's the biblical foundation. What does all of that mean theologically? How do we bring it together? First, personhood is something endowed. Personhood is something endowed, endowed by God. You know, we talked in the a uh, couple weeks ago, maybe, or maybe it was last week, about um, kind of the way in which the world has thought about personhood, and it's something that is achieved in many in many kind of philosophies or, or in a materialistic worldview when we're just thinking biologically. But in a the, in the theological conclusions that we can draw from this is that personhood is something endowed. So the image is not defined by man's attributes. Okay, so that responsibility, those characteristics that I just talked about, if we reduce the image of God to that, then that's not good, because we are not defined by our attributes, our emotions, our mind, our immaterial spirit, our moral awareness. Because the question is, what happens? when one of these things is defective or missing. So if we reduce being made in the image of God and the inherent value that comes from that down to these certain things about you, then what if those things are missing? One or more of those things are missing. Then can we kill you? Can we enslave you? Can we mistreat you in any way that we see or deem fit? A lot of us, though, functionally treat what it means to be made in the image of God with these abilities. But it's a dangerous worldview. Second, the image is not determined by man's capacities. His ability to think rationally, speak coherently, act morally, or interact physically. What happens when one or more of these things does not function? So it's not just that, you know... um, that these are attributes of us that we do it, but that we can do it. But the image is declared by God's command and marked by our potential. So I've not seen anyone say it the way that I said it there. I'm not saying that's necessarily unique to me, but I was trying to think of the right way to say it that mitigates against the abuse that we can see happen against people who are made in the image of God. And if it's not defined by attributes, if it's not determined by capacities, then what is it? Well, the image is declared by God's command and marked by our potential. So he said, let us make man in our image, which I take as being volitional, like a command. So let us make man in our image. This is a declaration, a command, which is spoken over the creation of every person. It is a fact about what a person is. It is an essence and a status. So that at the time of conception, A person is a person, not because of anything that they can do, 
but because of what God has declared them to be and the latent potentiality that lives in them that will come to fruition if all things go as they should. Ultimately, this is referred to as the ontological view of the image of God, which essentially identifies the image with what we are, not what we can do. So the image of God is based on what we are, not what we can do. All image bearers are filled with the same basic potential to resemble, represent, and respond. But, here's the key, the fall hinders these to different degrees in every person. But the gift of potentiality is what marks us out as the kind of being that we are. So that some of us, our fallenness, the effect of the fall on the image of God in us and who we are, what we are, is less obvious. In others, they are born maybe autistic. They are born maybe with Down syndrome. They are born um, with the inability to use their arms or their legs or a whole host of different things. And they are no less made in the image of God because what they are is the image of God. And in that they have the potentiality for all the things that everyone is meant to be able to do and to have be true of them. But the fall has affected them in a specific way that's different than the way that it has affected me or you. Does that make sense? Questions? Okay. I don't know where I heard this or read this recently, but someone was saying that it's like miracles and miraculous and the restoration of like sight to the blind or, you know, strength to the lame uh-huh. is not a departure from the, the normal. It's a restoration. So it's like when you were mentioning like what we might perceive as a deficit yeah. not being any less, it's because that is what they are mm-hmm. in God's perfect created order. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's a foretaste to... Um, to the time of when salvation comes in its fullness and He makes all things new. So that all of the ailments, all of the diseases, all of the moral and spiritual brokenness on this side of heaven, He may heal any one of those things, physical or spiritual, mental or emotional. Um, And if He does that, it is both a reaffirmation of the good creation in which He made us, but also a anticipation of the new creation in which he is ushering us into, um, which is an important aspect when we're talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, Two more things, or three more things, and then hopefully you'll have maybe some questions or comments, all right? So theologian Michael Horton says, Strikingly, Descartes arrived at his concept of the autonomous res cogitans, I guess, thinking thing, that's where I got it last week, I just didn't remember that, so it wasn't me. It was, it was sort of Descartes slash, I probably read it in Michael Orton. Um, uh, his, uh, he arrived at his concept of the autonomous, like that is the individual kind of self-functioning uh, res cogitans, thinking thing, by abstracting himself from the world and his mind from his body in contemplative solitude, while the biblical concept of the self emerged in constant interaction with God and fellow creatures in a particular history of covenantal relatedness. 
Um, so I wanted to put that there to draw out this fact that because we talked about Descartes last week um, and to highlight that whereas Descartes kind of saw us each as individuals that the only way that I can really know anything is that I've started with the fact that I know that I am, right? I think therefore I am and, and therefore has brought kind of an individualistic, self-contained sense of essence of who we are. The biblical portrait is actually kind of the opposite of that. It is that, um, that we are, you know, embodied in this world. Our mind is, you know, in our body. We self-emerged in this constant interaction between God and others. And so we've never known a time where we have been by ourselves. Now, that's not to say that everyone's in like a happy family and, you know, has this perfect life or anything like that. But it just means that no one is born in solitude. You were born, even if with no one else, then your mother is next to you, right? And so um, we are in constant negotiation of who we are and what we are in relation to both God and to the created order around us. And again, Horton says, The image of God, the Imago Dei, is not something in us that is semi-divine, but something between us and God that constitutes a covenantal relationship. To put it differently, it is not because our soul or intellect that we are ranked higher than our fellow creatures, but because we have been created in the wholeness of our psychosomatic identity with a special commission for a special relationship with God. So again, it's getting at that ontological, like we are the image of God, and aspects of that are what I've laid out, this um, the, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, this responsibility, this, uh, resemblance and this representation, these are aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God, but they are not the sum total or, uh, definitive, um, definition of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then here's this last thing from C.S. Lewis that I just thought was, you know, classic C.S. Lewis, um, he says, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should play uh, uh, off so... so I messed up that word there. Um, that we should play and work so our dealings with one another often tie them... Uh, sorry, that came out all wrong. Um, so here's what happened here. Uh, I used my phone with a little feature where you can like take a picture and then copy the, the words out of the, out of the picture and then uh, put it on here. And then apparently it did not really fully make out what all those words were. Um, but it is in mortals um, that we joke and quiz and work with, uh, that we snub and exploit immortal horrors and everlasting splendor. So he's basically just saying, even though that was a very awful sort of what just happened there, um, that uh, we are exalted godly beings that are headed to unimaginable glory or unimaginable degradation. 
and that if we were presented with the final form of ourselves, either in glory or degradation, heaven or hell, in this moment now, we would really probably be terrified under both. <laughs> you know, it's like in the Bible, anytime someone meets an angel, their immediate response is not like, oh, this is amazing. It is falling to the ground in fear. <laughs> and they have to be told, fear not. Because these are heavenly, angelic, um, glorious beings. And we too will be like that one day. And it's a reminder that as we interact with one another now, that we are in some way helping one another to that destination whether it be heaven or hell, to these glorious ends, whether it be gloriously beautiful or terrifyingly um, scary. So, questions at this point. Okay, no, really no questions? Give it a minute, I guess. Sorry. All right. The second piece. So we talked about kind of biblical, um, uh, what's the wording that I used? Uh, biblical contours. And so we talked about the image of God, biblical foundations. Um, but the second piece of these biblical contours is kind of the theological framing. I don't know if that's the best terminology for what I'm trying to do here. But it's to get at this other aspect of trying to understand what and who we are. And throughout the history of the church, there have been traditionally three options for understanding ourselves um, that are really parallel to this discussion about the image of God. And, um, and it really is to understand us as being um, made of three parts, made of two parts, or made of one part. So in the Bible, you'll read that, um, you know, it's, it'll be said of us that we are um, body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes you'll see them separated. Sometimes you'll see three. Sometimes you'll see two. Sometimes you'll see one. And so there's been a great debate for the history of the church, whether we are body, soul, and spirit, uh, body and soul, or body and spirit, those being synonymous, um, or, uh, or just like a singular sort of feature or whatever. And if you turn over onto the back of that sheet, you'll, you'll sort of see it broken down in that, um, that text box there. So trichotomy, human beings are composed of spirit slash mind, uh, soul and body in descending rank. Uh, dichotomy, human beings are composed of soul, which is synonymous with spirit or mind and body. Or monism, Human, being, human, be human beings, physical organisms, the characteristics traditionally associated with the soul or mind are attributable to chemical and neurological processes and interactions. Okay? Um, the third one is not super attractive to me. Uh, the first two uh, are more attractive, but I'm going to opt for a fourth option that has been popularized in the last probably 50 years. And that's what people call the psychosomatic union. Um, and so there again on the back next to the chart, um, psychosomatic is a double word. What do you call that? Compound word. Um, it's a compound Greek word. Uh, so psycho um, or psyche would be soul. And somatic, soma, body. And you put them together. So just New Testament foundations for this. 
Um, soul in the New Testament is the Greek word suke. It's used 103 times in the New Testament. Um, so suke or psyche uh, has a wide variety of meaning in the New Testament, being shaped by the Hebrew word nephesh. Among other things, it means life, soul, person, or mind. It can also stand for an, a human individual, a human soul. And so you can see there in Acts 2.41, 3.23, 7.14, and so on and so forth. It can also stand for the immaterial soul. The immaterial soul, Matthew 10.28, 1 Peter 1.9, 1 Peter 2.11, and 25, and 4.19. Or it can just stand for the soul as the seat of feeling, like your emotions, Matthew 12.18, or 26.38. Or the soul as in the inner self, Luke 12, 19. So this is a word that's used all across the New Testament when it was referring to us, or at least this aspect of us. But there's another word that's used across the New Testament as being referenced to us, and it is the word soma, or body. And it's used 142 times, not always about us, sometimes about the body of Christ. Um, But in the Apostle Paul's usage, the word varies from referring to the human body to the human person. So not just their body, but them as a whole. New Testament Greek scholar William Mounts argues that Paul's usage of this word is reliant on an Old Testament understanding of personhood, quote, which sees people as basically soul or psyche, or soma units, all right? So soul, body units. So um, you, you can also see it there as a living body in Matthew 5, 29, um, or uh, a person, an individual, in 1 Corinthians 6.16. So the theological synthesis, when you put those together, is this. Through the Bible, though the Bible does see man as a whole, it also recognizes that the human being has two sides, physical and non-physical. He has a physical body, but he is also a personality. He has a mind with which he thinks, but also a brain which is part of his body and without which he cannot think. When things go wrong with him, sometimes he needs surgery, but at other times, he may need counseling. Man is one person who can, however, be looked at from two sides. And then again, the important point is that human nature is not to be identified exclusively or even primarily with the soul. The real self is the whole self, body and soul. And so what we're getting at there is that um, in the history of the church, we've tended to um, really play up the soul as being who I really am. And then the body is just kind of this impediment Maybe even this negative kind of thing working against me that if I can just be liberated from it, all my problems would end. Um, I'm ready to go to heaven and be with Jesus. That's, where I, that's what I'm here for. You know, that's what I'm waiting on. Um, other times, people are, are too at home in the body and they reduce it down to the monism, right? Where it's just like, I am, I am totally just a interaction of physical realities, chemicals in my brain, blah, blah, blah. And I think in light of what we know, both theologically and scientifically, we have to say that there is this beautiful union between the immaterial and the material, the spiritual and the physical. Like in the example or or the quote that I just read, there may be something wrong with me that's related to my brain. 
And that could be the side of me that's thinking, or it could be the side of me that's physical, or in more likely is the case that it's actually a combination of the two. That these, these are so um, interconnected that one affects the other. Um, and so it is a psycho, psyche, somatic body union. Um, we are this complex um, communication of both of those things. All right, now I probably didn't say that super well. And it's confusing or you're lost or your eyes are glazed over. But do you have any questions that would help make it more clear and less murky? Yeah. <clears throat> so how is this distinct from the other anthropologies? It's not really clear that that's a distinct fourth option from trichotomy or dichotomy specifically. Um, yeah. So, um, so with a trichotomy view, so body, soul, and spirit, um, these would be... Um, you would have still a, a material or physical body, and then you would have the immaterial soul and spirit. And then uh, the way that those two work um, is not necessarily uniquely tied to your body. Okay, so um, there's not necessarily like a, um, a deep connection with spiritual things that are happening in your heart or your mind or in your character that might manifest themselves in your body. And I'll, I'll elaborate more on that in a moment with the um, psychosomatic union. Um, and, uh, and then we can really attribute very different things to, at least for the people who hold a trichotomous view, different things to the soul and the spirit. Okay, and so there's whole kind of like theologies that people have formed around like what things are unique to the soul and what things are unique to the spirit. You know, so we we're born with the soul, but the spirit doesn't come until you become a Christian. That'd be one one thing that, that people would say. Um, or the dichotomy view is, you know, soul, spirit are basically the same. And then you have a body. Um, but again, there's not this interaction between the two of them. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the character traits that mark us are all immaterial and have no sort of um, foundation or rootedness in biological realities, which will make more sense now that I've come to the last one. Uh, well, monism, we won't talk about that, but, um, well, yeah, monism's, monism's explanation for, you know, different kind of character or emotional reactions would be it's, a, it's an element of, you know, chemicals and fluids in your body, right? Um, so the psychosomatic union would say that um, in the immaterial part of us, when we have, you know, an emotional reaction that flows from who we are as a person in our character, the way that we live and embody the world kind of emotionally, psychologically, that when that happens in the immaterial, there is also a physical side that's, that's being manipulated and manifesting or whatever. So those chemicals are there and they are attributable to, you know, you can observe when someone is having an emotional reaction through like, you know, when you hook up all the, the nodes to the brain and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can see when, you know, uh, serotonin is being released and uh, dopamine is being released and, you know, you know, oh, this person is really happy and stuff. But it's not just a body thing. It's also a spiritual, um, immaterial soul and spirit thing as well. Does that make sense? And so the psychosomatic union is saying that these things are not mutually exclusive, that they actually work in tandem together, that where one begins to happen, and begins is a, kind of not a great word because it makes it sound like a chain reaction, but that they are 
you know, they actually are coterminous. They work together at the same time. So that if you could see the spiritual, you would see something happening here and here. Does that make sense? More of a distinction? Yeah, but I'm wondering who, like, who claims that they don't. Um, well, you know, if theologians of yesteryear knew what we knew about science, then they, they might, you know, they might not would have, um, they might have had a, a more robust kind of approach, but um, they just had no concept of like how the body related to um, the emotions or related to, you know, longer trends like depression. Um, so depression is a spiritual um, aspect. I think, I hope all of us would say that, but it's also a physical aspect. Um, it can be that your um, different levels of certain chemicals in your brain um, are off balance, and so they manifest or create depression in you, which then leads to the spiritual. It can be a spiritual thing that leads to the physical, right? So it can go either direction, um, but this is not just a one-time emotional reaction either. This is like a, a long-term state if we're talking about true depression. Um, and so again, theologians of yesteryear didn't necessarily have that level of understanding, and so they didn't theologize in that way. And so it ends up coming out as being very distinct and separate. Now today um, is a different landscape. And so the, the more common view that you'll see, especially among Reformed theologians, is the psychosomatic union. Okay. Hopefully that was a little bit more helpful. Other questions? I've, I've often heard these like broken down in relation to how Jesus was different from humans, like the Adam-born sons, um, because they tried to vindicate, well, did both body and soul leave when he was resurrected, or was it soul that departed and went to hell and then body rose afterwards? That's where that, like, the cotton... Mm-hmm. I've heard it broken that way, too. Um, so how does this interpretation work with Jesus? Like, him being divinity is a characteristic of his soul, and then body and soul work together to make him unique? Oh, wow, that's a great question that I did not prepare for. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Chalcedonian definition, Chalcedon being a, a council that came together um, in like around 400 or so, um, their basic thing was that they're, you know, um, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, uh, he has two natures um, in one person. Okay, that's kind of the formulation. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think as being a human, he had a soul that was part of that human nature. Um, and he carries with him a human soul even now. Um, but I don't know how to fully explain how that, all that interacts within his personhood, you know, given that he is both fully human and fully divine. Um, but it's hard to say that meaningfully that he was human if he did not have a human soul. Because then, here's, here's the deal. What, what people like, um, what like Gregory of Nazianzus, you know, would have said was that um, uh, what is not subsumed is not healed, which is to say that in order for salvation to be, in order for humans to be fully saved, Jesus had to be fully human. So that if he was mostly human, but his mind wasn't human, he had a divine mind, <coughs> Um, 
then uh, that like Apollinarius would have said that, then um, then he couldn't have saved all of us because our minds still need saving. Like we have corrupted minds. So in order to be a, a substitute for us on the cross and to stand in our place, Hebrews says that he had to be made like us in every way so that he might be a sympathetic um, high priest or whatever. And so it can't just be that he was, you know, had a human body and even a human mind, but then not a human soul because we have human souls. So in order to be uh, an appropriate sacrifice and substitute in our place, he had to be fully human in every way. So he had to have a human soul. But how that interacts with his divinity inside of his one person is maybe just a mystery, or at the very least, I'm too incompetent to answer. So. At least not without, and I, and I personally don't want to do that. Um, well, it's, it's time for us to, to end. I would love feedback after this if you have a minute for, you know, what, what direction you would have liked to have gone, maybe if uh, this was not that engaging for you. Um, but this is also laying a foundation to talk about all the fun hot, hot button issues, too. Um, so maybe this is a little less sexy, but in the next several weeks, you know, we'll get, you know, into the weeds of the really interesting things. So, um, Father, thank you for our time together, and we just ask that you would meet us in worship now as we give our hearts and our lives to you as a corporate body, and that you would respond to meet us there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.